Good morning. Please stand for the scripture reading. Today's passage is from Mark 1, 1 through 8. In the Blue Bibles, it's on page 488. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these home with you. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Gloria. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it discerns our thoughts and our intents. God, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that your word would be illuminated to us this morning by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would make our hearts receptive, that you would make our minds attentive. Lord, that we would um, hear the word of the Lord and that we would grow by it. God, we pray as well for myself, Lord, that, we w- that I would be able to uh, communicate Uh, under your direction, with your empowerment. God, without being corrupted by my own fallenness, Lord God, what you have written in your word, that I would just proclaim it as written and clearly, God, accurately, so that it could be understood and our lives could be conformed to it. Thank you for all of this. Lord, I, I thank you that there is a gospel that proclaims that you have come, that you've lived a perfect life, that you have shown us the Father that you have died in our place as a punishment for our sins, and you have given us your righteousness, and you have conquered death with your resurrection. And I thank you for the story that we're about to hear, God. And so I thank you for that, Jesus. Help us to take full benefit of sitting before you in your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it feels kind of weird to be here this morning. This is this is my first time in six weeks that I've stood here. I uh, uh, and I love it. It's great to be back. I've missed it. Hope I can remember how you do this, you know, some way. But uh, we're going to take a shot at it anyway. I'm really excited to be here for a couple of reasons. A second reason is this: that today we are beginning an epic journey through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and and what we want to do, we we're doing this. We're going to take our time and go through the book of Mark because we want you, this is, this is our, our sole purpose, we want you to take some time and deeply consider, hopefully in ways that you may have never done before, the person of Jesus Christ. He is, as Mark told us in the very first verse that Gloria read to us, he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he is the Son of God. 
And so as we begin, I've got a fairly uh, detailed introduction to this series. And I want to, and, and I mean, before I even start talking about the text. And so what I want to tell you, I want to, I want to just lay this out for you. And really, I mean this so seriously, if you are taking notes, write this down. Because before we begin this series, we're going to ask you, the congregation of Northridge Life Church, to do three things before we even begin as we proceed with this study. So the first thing that we want to ask you to do is to engage with this text. And what I mean by that, I don't want you to just let me do the reading for you and let me do the interpreting for you and let me do the, uh, the, the, the relaying of the information for you. We want you to, to spend time looking at it. We want you to, at the very least, we want you to read and reread the text that we look at each week. More than that, um, you could decide to perhaps read through all of Mark a few times during this series. Uh, Mark is, is easy to do that. It's the shortest of all the four Gospels. It's the most fast-paced of all the four Gospels. And you can easily read all the way through it in one sitting. It probably take you about an hour. If you're a slow reader, maybe two hours, but you can do it. Or you could divide it up and read it weekly or bi-weekly. But we want you to kind of marinate in Mark for a little while, if that's okay to ask you that. Now, it may seem odd to you for us to ask you a lot of times, and these are great things. We pass them out out there on the resource shelf. But a lot of times we have a Bible reading plan, and the goal is to just check those boxes and get through the Bible. But we're asking you something different. You can still do your Bible reading plan. We encourage you to do that. But it may seem odd to some of you that we're going to ask you to stay in one of the 66 books of Scripture. But I want to ask you a question and follow up to your to that. Is there a, a better... we got voices from heaven coming from somewhere. Uh, is there, if, if we ask you to stay in one book of Scripture, is there any better subject matter for your mind and your soul than the person of Jesus Christ? I'm asking, is there at all? And, and so what if while you're doing that, you're engaging with the text, what if you wrote down your observations and your questions and you even committed to, to your friends and, and maybe even family here at church? You just talked through with those. So you're your, your mind is prepared to come when we're together and talk about Mark. Second thing we're going to ask you is we want you to set aside time and meditate on what we will talk about. So remember, our subject in this study is Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate Son of God, the, the, the incarnate Son of Man. And, and I want to say this almost in a self-deprecating way, but you cannot grasp the depth of his nature, his, who he is in a 40-minute sermon. You have to take these texts as your own. You have to wrestle with them. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to show you how to apply them. Meditation is a really lost art among Christian believers. In fact, when I say meditation, some of you might kind of seize up a little bit because you've only associated meditation with weird Eastern religions where we sit in the lotus position and ohm our way into heaven or something like that. But, and, and, and so therefore we dismiss it out of hand, but it simply means when I talk about meditation, here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to just 
chew on what God shows us together in our Bible reading, in, our, in the sermons you hear, in, in what we observe within our own souls and what we observe in creation, and pray about it and conform our lives to what He shows us. Determine that as you read through Mark and hear these sermons that you'll intentionally take time and pause and consider what you've heard. Maybe you can do it for a few minutes each day during your devotional time or maybe just in conversation at lunch after church. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, said this, Without meditation, the truth of God will not stay with us. Why? The heart is hard and the memory slippery. And without meditation, all is lost. Meditation imprints and fastens a truth in the mind. As a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. So our encouragement to you is don't let this lingering encounter with Christ that we're about to have have no benefit to your soul due to apathy and inattention. See, your, your intentional pursuit of the truth of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of that, if you intentionally consider it, will yield a bountiful harvest if you're willing to take the time, to make time to consider what you're hearing. And lastly, we want to encourage you to settle in, to be patient. This study will not be fast. You have been therefore warned. And we are in no hurry to get through it. We, see, because what we want to do is we want to pause ourselves and feast upon Jesus in this season and find life and find truth in him. So, that's it. That's, that's what we're asking you to do, those three things. Engage with the text, meditate, and kind of and settle into this. So, before we begin, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the author of the Gospel of Mark. Mark who is also known throughout the New Testament as John Mark, sometimes even just referred to as John, could be called the Forrest Gump of the New Testament. Now, I did not just insult Mark. Let me explain. I'm not talking about you know, his mental capacity or anything of that nature. When I, when I call him a Forrest Gump, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, you know that the title character in that film somehow always winds up at every major event of the late 20th century. Well, this is how kind of Mark interacts with the New Testament. Uh, he, he just shows up everywhere. He does the same throughout the history of the early church, and especially in relation to the people he knows and connects with. It, it, he's just everywhere. Let me give you a few examples. So the Jerusalem church prayed, the book of Acts tells us, in John Mark's mother's house. Uh, and this was the time, you'll remember, when Peter was in jail. And long story short, what happened is an angel uh, just, just busted P uh, Peter out of prison. And, um, and he went back to John Mark's mother's house and showed up. And surely Mark was present to witness this miracle. More than that, Mark was also the cousin of Barnabas. Some of you may remember Barnabas. He was the guy that when the Apostle Paul had his dramatic conversion on the, on the road to Damascus, he kind of took him under his wing, brought him before the apostles. And um, Mark uh, eventually became the traveling partner of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. However, on their second missionary journey, Paul wanted to take Mark again with them when they were going uh, on their next trip. But Paul remembered how Mark had abandoned them in, in, and their work in Pamphylia. And so the Bible tells us that a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas 
uh, you know, over this issue of taking Mark or not. And so uh, because of this, Paul proceeded on with Silas uh, as his partner to Syria and Sicilia, and uh, Mark continued on to Cyprus to preach the gospel. Uh, Mark continued with Barnabas, rather, uh, to Cyprus to preach the gospel. Now, later, apparently, and this is the good news, this can happen, believe it or not, um, Paul and Mark reconciled, uh, and it seems that he may have even supported Paul when he was in prison in Rome uh, from the outside. Now, uh, we, we read this in the last letter Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, before his execution, when he's in prison in Rome, he says this in the, in the closing words of his book. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with, uh, with you. Now listen, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, isn't that great how God just kind of reconciled them? Because back at the end of the first missionary journey, he said, Mark is of no use to me whatsoever. And now he's saying, Mark is useful to me. And this indicates, by the way, that he was also talking about his connections in Ephesus with Timothy, because he's telling Timothy to bring him with him. So most important to our study, though, of all this stuff about Mark's biographical situation. Most important is his connection to Peter. Why is that the most important? Because while Peter was ministering in Rome before his martyrdom, he says this uh, in in 1 Peter 5.13, he says, she who is at Babylon, now Babylon is code word for Rome. Uh, Rome was evil, Babylon was evil. And so he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting. And watch this. And so does Mark, my son. Now, we know that Mark was not Peter's uh, biological son. So in calling him my son, there's an indication of a very close relationship. He's saying, uh, you know, I am Mark's spiritual father and, and Mark is like a spiritual son to me. The earliest church fathers, after the age of the apostles, unanimously testify that Mark is undoubtedly the author of this book, even though it doesn't bear his name, uh, uh, I mean, in, anywhere in the text. And, and that, that he received the information to write this book about the life of Christ firsthand from the Apostle Peter. That's why that connection is so important. An early church father named Papias referred to Mark as Peter's translator or his interpreter. Uh, it, it's very likely that, that uh, uh, Mark was of, of, of two different races, that he was Jewish and Greek, and so uh, he could have been an interpreter for, for uh, Peter. Uh, his gospel was written uh, during his time uh, with, the, uh, with the apostle. Uh, so what you need to know about that, that's important because Mark himself was not an apostle. Uh, he, he hadn't been an eyewitness to the events of the life of Jesus, nor was he called by Christ to serve in that capacity. Um, the apostolic authority of Mark, and the reason we accept it into the Bible, is because of his close connection to Peter's ministry and his account. Now, Mark was probably written from Rome uh, between 55 and 65 AD. This is 20 or 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And uh, that's important because this was a time of heightened uh, persecution, especially if it was closer to 65, that would have been at the, when Nero was just going nuts and he was lighting Christians on fire to light his garden parties and, and throwing them to the lions in the Colosseum and dressing them in animal skin so, so uh, wild dogs could tear them apart. It, just, it was a horrible time for Christians and they would meet in the catacombs in Rome. These were these, these underground tombs where there were you know, bones and cadavers. It was the only safe place where they could meet and they would have their church services in there. 
And it was most likely the first gospel written. And it seems that, from comparing them side by side, that Matthew and Luke used Mark as source material and, and even formatting for their own gospels. That's why we call those three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptic gospels. That means uh, having the same view, that they look the same. And, and what you need to know about those, that doesn't mean they're identical photocopies of each other. They are very similar in, in large parts and very different in very specific parts. Um, not difference in disagreement, difference in content. Um, so Mark is also, as I said earlier, the shortest gospel account. And it focuses more on what Jesus did. If you like stories that move a lot, this is your one. There's a lot of action in the book of Mark. It focuses on what he did as opposed to what he taught. Uh, more, the, more of that than the other Gospels. Although there are definitely teachings in here. There's parables throughout the book. Uh, but Mark tends to focus on a moving story. And this is clearly seen in Mark's repeated uh, use of one Greek word. That Greek word is euthys. And euthys is translate, translated in your ESV Bible as immediately. Uh, in your, if you're still using a King James, it's, it's translated as straightway. And this word is found 42 times in the book of Mark alone. And that's important because of the, in the whole rest of the New Testament combined, it's only found 12 times. But Mark uses it over and over. He says, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. And because he's writing primarily to Roman Gentiles, he intermixes Latin with his Greek text. There is a lot of so to communicate more clearly. And he's real careful to explain Aramaic words and Jewish customs that his readers may not be familiar with. You see that a lot more in Mark than you do in the other three, uh, three synoptic gospels. Now, uh, with this book, he creates a brand new literary genre. And that genre is gospel. And, and there's three more gospels that would follow in the canon, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But all of them would have this in common, that they focus attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Mark introduces this idea of this type of literature being a gospel in the very first verse that, that Gloria read to us. Uh, Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Greek word here is euangelion. And it basically means good news or glad tidings. That's what it means. So this is great stuff that we want to tell you. This is the gospel. Now, if you and I right now in 2022 are talking about the gospel or, or gospel anything, if we're using it as an adjective, gospel music, you know, gospel this, gospel that, we always think of the word gospel in religious terms somehow, that, that it's connected to, you know, some kind of religious meaning, the gospel. But, but what you need to know is that the gospel wasn't strictly a religious word in, uh, the, you know, was it in the ancient world. It was often attached to official secular announcements like the good news of the birth of an emperor or an important military victory. They would say, we, we send this herald into your village to pronounce the gospel. We won the war. We, 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 uh, we're sending this herald to your village to announce the gospel. The, the emperor has his firstborn son, whatever it was. And so pause there. This is what I'm talking about meditating. Just pause there. Mark, as the first gospel writer, when he's thinking, what do I need to call this story of Jesus Christ? He uses the word gospel. Secular word, good news, official announcement from the king. 
So think about, just for a second, the category that Mark is putting the story of Jesus Christ in for his first readers with the use of that word. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I've got an announcement. The ultimate king, the king of all kings has arrived. The most costly war ever has been won. And victory has been achieved in his name. The story is that the good news must be told. That's the category he's putting it in. This is big stuff. His idea, furthermore, he says this is the beginning of the gospel. His idea of the beginning of the gospel is interesting because while, as I said earlier, there's no disagreement before the, between the four gospel writers, they all begin their gospels in ways that are absolutely unique to them. Let me give you some examples. Matthew begins with a genealogy to prove to his mostly Jewish uh, readers that Jesus is both descended from Abraham and the rightful heir to David's king, uh, throne. Luke begins telling the conception and birth stories of both John the Baptist and Jesus. He has a genealogy as well, and it focuses on Jesus' humanity, taking it all the way back to Adam. And John begins with a theological explanation of Christ's divinity, proving that he was God. But Mark sets the beginning of his gospel way further down in the story. First, he kind of prefaces it with a composite quote from three Old Testament books, Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi. And and he, he wants to do this to tie the appearance of Christ to the plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption, which God had been progressively revealing in the Old Testament since the book of Genesis. And he chooses part of his quote from the law, and part of his quote from the prophets, perhaps to prove that, the, that this appearance of Christ is the unanimous prediction of all Old Covenant revelation. He attributes the entire quote to Isaiah in his text, probably because that's where the majority of its content is pulled from. Let's read that again, Mark uh, 1, 2, and 3. It says, As it is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make, make his paths straight. Now, pay particular attention in this, this quotation to the personal pronouns that are used. First, notice that it is God who is speaking. I will send my messenger. Someone will be showing up with a message with the very words of God himself. Then he goes on to say that who will prepare your way. Now, if God is speaking and he's talking to the message, who is your, your uh, way? Who, who is he referring to there? Well, the next verse makes it plain. He, he will prepare your way, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it, it, it's, it's in Isaiah 40, verse 3, where this uh, quote is taken from, Lord, you'll notice if you look in your Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which indicates that that is the holy name, Yahweh, the the great I am. I am who I am. And, And so that's interesting because God is sending a messenger to announce the imminent appearance among his people of the great I am himself. It's not just a messenger coming. This messenger's coming will precede the imminent coming of the great I am, of Yahweh himself. He's going to come and be among his people. And Mark moves right from this quotation into the action. His next two words, 
So this, this word has been given, that the messenger's coming, his next two words, John appeared. Now this is John the Baptist. God had promised his messenger was coming to prepare the way of the Lord, God's Messiah, and how would he prepare it for him when, when he shows up? Well, John appears, and the Bible tells him that he appeared baptizing in the wilderness. John's appearance in the wilderness was not just incidental to his living situation. You know, it's like Mark appeared in the trailer park. It wasn't something like that. It's, it's, it, they're talking about uh, his, th- th- that he appears uh, in the wilderness and it has great significance. Luke tells us of John the Baptist that he lived in the wilderness until he appeared, till this moment, until he appeared publicly to Israel. The people of Israel... Let me give you some setup here. Had not seen a prophet of God for over 400 years. And the wilderness in the Old Testament was often the place where prophets were either called by or communed with God. Moses, you'll recall, saw the burning bush and heard the voice of, of Yahweh where? In the wilderness. Elijah was fed by ravens during a drought where? In the wilderness. And the people who were coming, even though we might read over the word wilderness, not give it a second thought, the people who were coming to John and saw John and heard John knew that this was true. They, these things were, were, were pounded into them from a very early age. They knew it to be true. So when John comes out of the wilderness, people took notice. And he became a sensation, and everybody was talking about him. Both Mark and Luke tell us that all the people were convinced that he was a prophet. But it wasn't just that, that John emerged from the wilderness. What he preached was radically different than the message of their religious leaders, of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark 1.4 says that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we read right over that. We have baptism in our church, baptism pre-common test. We don't think a thing about it. But this message stood out. Here's why. You may not know this. Jews... Do not get baptized. They don't. There's no ceremony in, in Judaism where a, a good, born-into-the-covenant Jew gets baptized. It does not happen. Now, Gentiles who convert to Judaism have to get baptized because they're considered unclean. Chosen people, like the Jews, don't view themselves as in any need of such cleansing. So this baptism becomes, if you read the, all four gospel accounts, it became a point of great consternation between John and the Pharisees. And I think it's in the book of John, they, they uh, come to John the Baptist and they say, hey, what is all this baptism stuff? We got to give a report back to the people who sent us to figure you out. John was under investigation by the Jewish religious authorities because of this new and officially unauthorized doctrine that he preached. But John, C. was preparing the way for the Messiah. He wasn't just reinitiating and reestablishing and, and repropping up the old covenant. He was announcing something new, something better. A.B. Simpson said this, and I loved it. When John demanded that the children of the kingdom should go down to the bottom and start at nothing, start like the heathen started, and get baptized as a confession that they were not even consistent Jews and had no rights or privileges but were lost, vile sinners, that was thorough work. That was treating human nature as it has to be treated by God. 
as so thoroughly worthless that there is no remedy for it but death. And this, the Pharisees understood all the symbolism of that, and that was way more than their fragile egos of the Pharisees could endure. So verse 5 It says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Again, this has more significance than a simple reading of the words would indicate. Bible commentators have been quick to point out that Mark is portraying the appearance of John the Baptist followed by the coming of the Messiah as a second exodus just like the one that happened in the book of Exodus, the second Exodus that was predicted in Isaiah's chapters 40 through 55. There's a lot of symbolism there. I wish I could have done a whole other message and and given you all that symbolism, but just just, uh, look it up and and you'll find it. But Moses, now I want you to think about these comparisons here of of what's happening in Moses' time versus what's happening in John the Baptist and Jesus' time. Moses came where? Out of the wilderness, where he'd been for 40 years, where he'd met with God at the burning bush, and he went to Pharaoh in God's name and demanded that he let the people go. And and once they were delivered, they came out of Egypt, and where did they go? Back into the wilderness, where they were baptized, both Paul and Peter tell us, in the Red Sea. It was a metaphorical baptism when they passed through the Red Sea. And and, And where did they go from there? They went to meet with the living God, at Mount Sinai. Now, keep all that in mind. What's happening here? John is coming from where? Out of the wilderness. And subsequently, he's calling people in, in, the, in the Mecca of, of you know, Judaism in Jerusalem, he's calling them to come out to the wilderness and be baptized, just like the Red Sea experience. They were coming out of a metaphorical Egypt of sin by confessing their trespasses against God's covenant. And he'll go on to the point where just like Moses took the people after they were delivered and baptized, he took them to Mount Sinai to meet with the living God. John will go on to point this people also to the living God. Because he said this in John one twenty nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said these words, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just like Moses. Next, really oddly in this story, I used to think, we're told about John's wardrobe and his diet. And like I said, it may seem odd or unnecessary out of place. I never understood why that had to be. In, I, I, I couldn't care whether John wore camel's hair or a polyester leisure suit. I couldn't care less. But somehow, the gospel writers, at least three of them, feel very necessary to tell us about John's wardrobe and his diet. But again... For what, the fourth time here? There's something that you need to notice here. Look at what it says. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Just after the passage from Malachi that Mark cites in verses 2 and 3, we read these words, or we read this, that, that the day of the Lord's appearing will be preceded by Elijah coming, or Elijah appearing. Elijah will come first, is the idea. And these Jews, under the thumb of Rome, waiting for the Messiah to deliver them, were looking for the sign and the appearance of Elijah. So then this prophet comes out of the wilderness. Everybody's attention is piqued. 
When the, when the Pharisees come to interrogate John in John chapter 3, they ask him, uh, are you Elijah? That's the first question. Are you Elijah? I was, again, when I was young and read that, I had no idea why they started with that. Why didn't they start with any other you know, ancient Bible character? But they start with that. Are you Elijah? And they're asking because they want to know if he's preceding the coming of the Messiah. And his response quickly, I am not. See, they were looking for the appearance of the actual prophet of old to come back. But an angel had told John's father, Zechariah, before his birth, that John would minister to the people in the spirit and power of whom? Of Elijah. Now, Orthodox Jews, you may not know this, you may know it. Orthodox Jews continue in this hope today because they don't believe that their Messiah has yet arrived. So at every Passover Seder... They leave an empty chair at the table for Elijah. It's Elijah's chair, hoping that he will come to their celebration of the Passover and say, hey, the the Messiah is coming. And do you realize how sad that is? Because the, the Passover is just loaded with imagery of Christ. And they're, and they're still looking for an ancient hope with the, with the actual prophet showing up. John's attire is significant because Mark is telling you that it identifies him with who? With Elijah. If you read 2 Kings chapter 1, you'll find this story where um, so the, uh, Elijah meets these uh, soldiers with a message for the king, and they go back. They don't know who he is. They go back, and, and they, they tell the king that they met this man, and he has this message. This is what, what we read in, in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. It says, They answered him, Well, listen to this. He wore a garment of hair, with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king says, immediately, just by those two things, he says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Again, guy comes out of the wilderness, dressed exactly like, and they know this. This has been pounded into them. They know it. Dressed like that, and they say, oh my goodness, the prophecies are being fulfilled. Elijah's here. No wonder people came out to hear John speak as he did. Now, the most important thing about John, as we prepare to move into the life of Jesus, the most important thing about John was his message. John, the Bible says, preached. He was a preacher, and and his sermon was always Jesus. Jesus was his sermon. And I will tell you right here, right now, there is no other subject worthy of being preached but Jesus. Gabe said this last week, I have no intention ever to bring you in here and tell you five ways to have a better marriage. I have no intention. You know how you want to have a better marriage? Submit to Jesus. That's how you have a better marriage. I'm never going to tell you how to, to, you know, have nine steps to have, you know, more control of your finances. You know how I'm going to tell you to do that? Honor Jesus with your finances. Jesus is the subject of every true gospel message. There's no room for anything else. Guys like Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen can fire up a crowd and motivate people, but the Jesus, the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus is absolutely missing from their message. And John would not have any of that foolishness. Jesus was the bullseye of everything he said. He says it like this, verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So first, John does two things here. First, he acknowledges who Christ is in relation to himself. Now, this is important because in our terminology, John's a celebrity. People are coming all out to see him. And he, he knows that. And he, he, instead of saying, oh, we're, we're going to build a huge church here and I'm going to you know, get on TBN and we're going to have everybody you know, watch and listen. He doesn't say any of that silliness. He acknowledges who Christ is. People were excited to see John arrive in the spirit and power of Elijah, dressed like Elijah, for goodness sakes. But his cry was, I am not the main attraction. I'm just a herald. I'm a messenger. I am just a voice. I am a signpost pointing to you to one who is more mighty, vastly more important. And in those days, when everybody wore sandals, everybody had to walk on dusty, muddy roads, covered with animal dung, the most dignified people would have a slave to remove their sandals and wash their feet so they didn't even have to touch them. It was the lowest job in the house for the most insignificant slave. But watch what John says. He says, I will not touch the feet of the coming one. Is that because John is one of the dignified people? Is that because John is, is, is one of the, uh, the you know, people too important to touch his own filthy feet? No. John says, I won't touch the feet of the coming one, not because I'm so important, but because he's so holy. What John is saying is, is, what's on his feet wouldn't contaminate me, but everything that's in me is definitely unworthy of him. And after proclaiming the person of Christ, secondly, John proclaims the promise of Christ. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Man, what a promise. What a promise. The Holy Spirit was not understood or related to the way we as believers in the church of the living God relate to him. He was, he was distant. He was, uh, he, he was sometimes symbolic or oftentimes symbolic of God's wrath. And Matthew and Luke add on that point when they're quoting John, they give a couple more words. They say that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Through Jesus, the Spirit would be poured out. And you know, if you know your Bible, that this happened first on the day of Pentecost. And this was the day uh, Christ's church was born for the, for the world. And for believers, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the most important thing about us. It, it means guidance. It means comfort. It means advocacy. It means empowerment. It means access to the throne of God where Christ himself intercedes for us. And baptism by fire for us who believe means that we are being purified. It means that we're being progressively purified like, like gold in a furnace. The longer we're in the fire, the, 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 the more the heat cleanses us and purifies us. But to the unbeliever, all of those benefits I listed for the, uh, from the Holy Spirit, for the unbeliever, they are flatly denied. They do not have advocacy and comfort and guidance and, and uh, you know, access to the throne. They have none of that. And when Jesus 
talks about fire, he doesn't deny that to the unbelievers. In fact, Jesus talks about it in Mark. He calls it the fire of God's judgment and that it is not quenched. It's an eternal destroying fire, not, the one, not one that purifies and refines. So here's John saying, hey guys, the Lord is right around the corner. All this time we've been waiting since Genesis, he's right around the corner. Prepare his way. Prepare it not in, in, in ways that have anything to do with Rome and their oppression and some political idea. Prepare his way in your heart. Go down low. Go down below the surface of the water, your symbolic death, realizing that you're not bringing anything to the party. You need Jesus. You need the Messiah. You need the Son of God. My question for you is, this is your first opportunity to meditate, like I said at the beginning. Is this a message only for 2,000 years ago, or is it a message for today? Prepare the way of the Lord. Is this message for unbelievers who need to come into the waters of baptism? Or is it for believers as well? Are we, you and I, those of us who claim to be Christ, are we preparing our hearts to hear His voice by being in His Word and, and, and listening to preaching? And a lot of other ways. Listening to our friends, humbling ourselves. Are we preparing our hearts when we gather at this table and receive the body and the blood of the Lord and and the grace that they communicate? Are we prepared to fight within us even the smallest sins? Or do we just make excuses for them? Are we willing to fight them to the bloody death for the glory of our Lord? Are you prepared to stand before your unbelieving friends and your family proclaiming that they too can escape the curse of sin? Or are we, as I often say, are we just lowest common denominator Christians? The basic thing that feels like rescues us from the flames. And so, that long introduction about engaging with the text, taking time to meditate, settling into this book, all of that, was about this. And it's just a small segment of it, but prepare the way of the Lord. This could be your year. And I don't mean that in some kind of Tony Robbins motivational awaken the giant within sort of ridiculousness. This is what I mean. This could be your year. This could be the year that you, by your commitment, whatever it looks like, prepare the way of the Lord so that giants fall so that grace rains down, so that you, instead of just being the member of a religious club, actually begin to have communion with the living God. So ask yourself this question. Meditate on it this week. Are you preparing the way for the Lord? Or are you just like those Pharisees demanding answers, just here for information and not not to, to, to come beneath the water of God's baptism and saying, 
Lord, I'm going low so that I can see you as high as you are. What we're going to do right now is we are going to do like Moses did, do like John the Baptist did, and we're going to point to the living Christ by inviting you to the table of the Lord to partake of communion. So if you would all stand with me. I'm going to invite you to come uh, and receive the elements down here. Uh, or do we have helpers? I didn't even ask this morning. If we get our helpers to come first, um, if you would come and, and uh, receive the elements, then we will go back to, the, to our uh, tables and, or back to our chairs and, uh, and take those. So um, you're, you're free to come. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that these elements... Um, when consumed and consecrated by a priest, not in that order, consecrated by a priest and consumed, become the, the actual flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the taking of them. Um, we flatly reject and deny that. We don't think that's biblical at all. But one of the things that the church has, has taught since the Reformation in, in trying to correct that doctrine is that in ways mysterious, in fact, the word sacrament literally means mystery it, uh, in the Greek. And in ways that are mysterious, that, that in taking this, this, these elements, this bread, this, this cup, that the Holy Spirit literally takes us into the presence of the risen Christ. It's a heavenly transaction, mysterious, we don't understand it, but takes us. And there, in taking these common elements of bread and the cup, that we are, we are actually enabled to feast in the real presence of Christ, on Christ, and receive life from him. And so, why don't you just take just a second and just think about that. And ask the Lord to make that transaction real to you today. That He, he takes you to the place where you can feast on Christ and all of his life can be transfused into you. Can you just do that for a second? God, this is how we're preparing your way this morning. Lord, we don't want to just have a fleeting memory of something you did, Lord. We want to benefit from it today. And so we ask you that you would, this very day, Lord God, that you would set before us a table, not just here as you have, but you would set before us a table in heaven where all the, the benefits of Christ's glorified humanity can be given to us, Lord, in the real presence of Christ, that we can, that we can absolutely feast on Him, receive life from Him, God, be transformed by Him, that you would let grace be ministered to us in this moment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's thank the Lord for his body and blood. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us, that that we have been those who are recipients of the good news of the gospel, that the king has come, that that the war has been won, and we thank you for that. We thank you this morning that we've sung about it. We've heard it in in testimonies and and, uh, preaching, Lord. We thank you for what your word has been telling us throughout the week about who uh, you are and what you've done for us. And so, Lord, help us to walk in the reality of the transforming power of your gospel. Thank you, Lord. If you would, just extend your hands in a receiving position. I want to read you a benediction and um, just pronounce this over you to to bless you in the name of the Lord. The Bible says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen.